Well, good morning, CLC. Um, I have the honor this morning of, of introducing our speaker. Um, he should be a pretty familiar face, uh, as you have seen him speak a couple times uh, as a guest speaker over the last couple months. Uh, this morning, I have the pleasure of introducing him for the first time as a member of our staff team. Um, so as you may have heard over our, just the announcements over the past couple of weeks, uh, we are excited to have Pastor Eric uh, join our CLC family as a consulting pastor of empowerment. Uh, sure, that's a little bit of a fancy title just to say he will be helping to uh, pastor our church with a focus on some leadership uh, development and strategy. But really, I wanted to take a moment to uh, welcome him into uh, the CLC family, both Pastor Eric and uh, his own family. Um, so I've been able to have a couple conversations with him over these past couple weeks as we talked about what it would look like for him to come on board. And it has just been an awesome opportunity to get to know him, to see uh, just what, what he's like and, and to see how evident his love for God and the church really are. Um, so I definitely encourage you guys uh, to reach out uh, and make him feel truly welcome into the CLC family. Uh, I know that uh, we as a church congregation are, are known for being a little hospitable. So I encourage you to uh, just continue that and, and reach out to their family uh, and invite them into uh, just the, the CLC life and, and family. Um, so uh, we, we, we figured we'd let Pastor Eric jump right into things. And what a better way to start out a new job than to give a sermon on your second day. Uh, so without further ado, I will let uh, Pastor Eric take it away. I'm excited to hear what he has to say this morning. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jared. Good morning. Uh, I'm uh, excited to be here and excited to uh, hopefully get to know many of you um, uh, in a much more significant way. Um, and starting new things is always um, <clears throat> is always fun. You always have anticipation. And I was just thinking about that um, as we look at our series in Ephesians. I was thinking about that this week. And I remembered a time, like, what was the time when I had a ton of anticipation towards something? And, um, and I went all the way back in my mind to junior high. Um, it was uh, the first time I went to a junior high dance. Um, I don't know if you can recall, most of us block those things out. I remember being excited to go. And I, I remember, I don't remember what outfit I had on, but I remember I put a lot of thought and time into it, which most of the time as a 13 year old boy, I did not. Right. And it was probably in 1978. It was probably some terrible silk slash polyester you know, shirt with a jean vest or some sort. Um, I remember having those things in my closet and um, being very excited as everybody talked about how great a time it was. And then walking in that Friday night into, into the auditorium dance and all of a sudden everything changing, my perspective changing. Um, when I walked in, it was not... Uh, it was not a dance full of people on the floor. It was everybody on the sides of the gym. And I remember thinking, everybody is looking at me. I remember thinking about my hair, about my outfit, and then catching a handful of my friends and saying, I'll go, I need to make it to them. It was like an, it was like an oasis in the, you know, in the dance. And I remember walking over to them the whole time with my head down hoping people weren't laughing at me or, uh, and being very much hyper-focused on, on the way that I looked in the walk seemed to be a mile or two over there. 
um, developmental psychologists call this uh, at this age, call it the imaginary audience. And it's an important thing to go through, but it's that feeling that everybody's looking at me. Meanwhile, everybody else at the dance is actually probably going through the same thing I am. They, we've all gathered in a room thinking everybody's watching us, but really all we're doing is thinking about our, ourselves and, and how we look. And no one, again, is really dancing. And so after, after much time with a group of friends watching every, everybody else um, around the gym, I remember all of a sudden one boy would leave one group and walk over to a group of girls and we would go, okay, there he goes. He's going in. He's going to ask somebody to dance. Does it work? Right. And then he, the girl would say, yes, you'd go out and dance. I'm like, there's hope that, that this could actually work. Meanwhile, 80% of the people uh, of us at the studio, nobody is actually, you know, we're all standing around, right? It is, um, it is a night of like social landmines everywhere where you walked into it excited and then no one's dancing. And finally, after an hour or so of standing around um, calculating, I walked over uh, to a young woman and I forget who it was, but I remember asking them to dance and them saying yes. And then quickly following up with, but not with you. Right? I experienced the joy and the horror of being rejected all within a minute. And then you have to turn around and walk back to your friends and they know exactly what happened to you. Right. So uh, I wanted to be vulnerable this morning and share that. But I but I remember at the end of the night, you're going I remember going to this dance, hoping for the best. But in reality, spending most of my time just thinking about myself and trying not to mess up. And at the end of the night, I remember reflecting back. You didn't really enjoy it and you didn't really dance. (laughs) I went to a dance where no one really danced. Right. And. The reason I bring this up is as we're talking in Ephesians um, about uh, uh, to this morning about grace, the Christian life can feel that way at times. Lots of anticipation, but in the end, sometimes uh, I end up just focused on myself trying not to mess up. And I'm invited to something and it seems like I really don't get to the thing I really wanted to get at. I really don't get uh, to dance, which I was called to. And so today I, we want to talk about uh, this passage, which is um, this, this fantastic passage that is very clarifying for our faith that Paul writes. Now, the first thing, just a little bit of background on Ephesians um, you know, Paul is, you know, anytime we look at scripture, the first question we want to ask is what did this passage mean to the original hearers? It's tempting to go right to what does it feel like it means to me? But unless we answer that first question uh, of what does it mean to the original hearers, we don't know. So the background, uh, Paul is writing uh, this letter to uh, to the the church at Ephesus. It's one that he founded, and he actually spent three years there. And now, about a decade later, he's writing back uh, to them. So this is a letter um, it's filled with instruction, filled with uh, with the church. But Ephesus is not um, is not a normal town in the sense that uh, it, it it was very multicultural. And Paul was passionate about starting churches 
um, within within Gentile uh, communities. And so, and this was a Gentile community. It had all the Greek and Roman practices. And at the, the heart of Ephesus for centuries was one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple uh, of Diana, which was um, a, a, a god of a fertility god, a god that you went to to worship, hoping that you know, maybe you could get pregnant or they had other uh, festivals over over those decades that were very uh, sexualized in nature. I'll just leave it at that. And so the town was known for this and it attracted people in for seasons, um, you know, um, dur uh, during that, uh, you know, during that time. So this is the backdrop of the of, of Ephesus and where the church, um, you know, starts off at. And um and, and the temple itself was was gigantic, and it was built and destroyed and built a number of times over those years. But it was as it was as big as a football field, and it could hold literally tens of thousands of people. You know, Oracle Arena, if you if you would. So, as we look at as we look at this first as these first verses in chapter two, Paul is summing up for the Ephesians, you know, reminding them of what their condition was. He says in uh, verse uh, in verse one, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Paul's like, you know the town you're in. And you know the life you used to live. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were separated from God. You know, um, Proverbs, you know, the, the Proverbs says it this way, there is a way that seems right, you know, to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So Paul establishes, remember, we know where we came from before, uh, before you met Christ. Uh, we were lost completely lost, deserving of wrath. And then he pivots in verse four to say this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And so the first point as we come to, uh, as we come to talking about the grace of God and the, this, uh, and this love that God has is this grace is a gift of the father's love, but God's love, he, he can, he's compelled to reach out to us. And God always makes the first move out of his love towards us. This is a theme throughout all of scripture in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul repeats this when he, in Romans five, eight, he says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4 says this, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And so understand that God loves you. He doesn't choose just to love you. He doesn't place that on. It's the very nature of who he is. God, he... He can't help but be loving. Every decision that he makes comes out of his love. It's 
wider and bigger. We can feel loving. We can, we can feel the tide go out in our love at times, even for the people in our family. You know, if, um, even for the people we love that frustrate us, we can feel like, okay, I'm going to love this person. This is not the same with the father. Everything the father does is always out of his love. And so anytime we start to think that he maybe doesn't love us, that we're now thinking of him more like us than it is like who he is as his, as his true nature. Now, for the people in Ephesus, that was a thought they needed to have because they grew up in a town rich with, with, with foreign gods, with these you know, Greek and Roman gods. And if you think about that, then those gods, they, they were petty, right? They weren't perfect. And they could show favor on people. Imagine the thousands of people came in hoping for a miracle from, uh, you know, from uh, in the temple of Diana and sometimes getting it, sometimes not hearing the stories. And so um, it's almost like the, if you think about the superheroes, even we have in the Marvel universe with all these movies, they're, they're almost like um, they're powerful quote unquote gods at times, but, really they're they're just human beings with super with with supernatural power and oftentimes it's easy to uh to conflate that that maybe that's how god is but he's not he's not like that at all but um you know henry nowen has a quote because when you have gods that are like that when you have things in your life that you place on that pedestal um really you come down to obeying or, you know, or having a relationship with them that is not out of love. What, what, uh, what uh, a great thinker and writer Henry Nowen says is this, the opposite of fear is not courage, but it's love. And if you think about that within the, within the length of, you know, what is your relationship, um, you know, to, to God or even to other, uh, other people as they look at what they believe in. The idea is that, you know, Jesus uh, uh, in the New Testament says, you know, perfect, right? Perfect love casts out all fear. And so Paul knows because he knew the scriptures as he's talking to these, these dear people that God is holy. He's transcendent. He's immutable. And everything he does comes from the fabric of his love. In the world we live in now, you will hear quotes all the time. Um, and there's many of them in different ways. I, I just brought up one by Voltaire. And it says this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to repay the favor ever since, right? Uh, this kind of nihilistic view of, well, God is just a figment of our imagination because we needed something to lean on. This couldn't be anything further from the truth. This is, these are, these are the false gods that actually fulfill this. You're right. We needed to make up, they needed to make up Zeus or Aphrodite's in order, right? In order to, um, you know, feel like something, something was hopeful, was hopeful or something was taking care of us. And they were like, and hopefully you weren't on the wrong side of that. You were, you were maybe hopeful that they would look on you, but maybe, you know, maybe the earthquake or the, uh, or, or the, uh, you know, natural disaster was their anger. And so they left them in chaos, right? But this is not who our God is. This is not the God of scripture. The God of scripture, when God loves, 
it's not human at all. We don't have stories of countries conquering other countries and then like the love of God saying, not only do we forgive you, but we give you half of our riches. That doesn't happen. The history of the world is, right, is, is empires conquering other, other people and making them subservient and making them slaves. But it's the God who has all power who lays down his power and comes after us in his love. And so the first thing as we see is that, is that this, is where, this is where God's grace comes from. That grace is the gift out of the Father's love. And God can't be anything but loving. The next thing we, we are going to come to is this. Not only that, is grace is a gift of salvation. As we read on in chapter two, it says this, it is by grace that you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, Paul actually repeats twice, and anytime scripture repeats things twice, it's always a, hey, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a doubling down, if you would. It's, it's great emphasis when he says, when Paul says uh, twice, it's by grace you have been saved. And so it is that unmerited favor from the Father, and that grace is the gift of salvation that we actually have a right standing with God. Salvation is always by faith. It's faith plus nothing, right? There's nothing else you need to do. And if you think about the world, there are many people um, that uh, just physically, emotionally uh, wouldn't be able to attain certain things, whatever, whatever we want to attach to it. Um, some people actually would confusing thinking, oh, in the Old Testament, things were different. They weren't. It was always faith in God that was that, was that salvation. Um, as we look at it now, we'd say that in the Old Testament, it was faith looking forward to what God would do. And now we look back um, in time to say it was it's faith in what Christ did for us as he fulfilled those promises. Um, and it's the, the, you know, the, the picture of Abraham, it says um, in Genesis 6, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. It was always by faith. And even the Abrahamic covenant, which is, is the picture of, of, of um, you know, the archetype of, of our relationship with God and of what Jesus would do, is that God comes to Abraham and says, I want to enter into a covenant, a contract with you. And he says, and this is what we're going to do. So they set it up like a normal covenant back in those days where they would sacrifice animals. They would split them in half. And then the two people would walk together uh, through it to set up a binding contract covenant. And with Abraham, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And then God, in a, and then God goes through um, uh, go, goes through the covenant by himself. And the picture is this of God saying, 
God saying to Abraham, and this is very, very deep in the Old Testament, the promise that I made to Abraham is by me. Abraham, even if you make mistakes, it doesn't matter. My promises will come true because I'm promising myself. And we see the same thing here in Paul's, in Paul's word. And it really comes from this place when it comes to God graces this gift of salvation is that God's desire is always to have a people to himself. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this, not just within the picture of Abraham, but God saying, they will be my people and I will be their God. Right? And he says, and God is just desiring that Israel follow him. They will be my people. I will be their God. And Jesus coming and he says, you know, um, you know, at, at Pentecost, go and wait because you're going to take the gospel to every corner of the earth, that God desiring a people that belong to himself. And then in the book of, at the end of Revelation, um, this vision of the throne, and it says, I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, for now the dwelling of God is with man, and they, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. And then it goes on to that famous birth, he will wipe every tear from their um, you know, from their eye, you know, there'll be no more sickness, disease, that this is always, this is the lifelong, um, uh, you know, trajectory of the father is to have a people of his own. And within the gift, he gives us that ability um, uh, to, to enter in and be with him in that sort of, of family child relationship. Um, now, oftentimes we think of this, this, this thing of this term of salvation is just kind of a one-time event, right? And and many times um, uh, we can get lost in the, it's easy to get lost in the fact that, well, okay, I made that decision. So now I keep going, but there's nothing wrong with reaffirming your faith on a regular basis. It's almost like the fundamentals of our faith is to come to the father at any time and say, thank you for the gift of salvation. It's not becoming a believer again, but it's almost like going back, uh, you know, to the blueprint and saying, Father, wait a minute, I only have standing with you because of your love. Thank you that you pursued me. Thank you. And I accept this gift. I accept that, um, you know, I accept the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. He took my place on the cross. And that was your idea. Thank you that re you reached out to me. Um, and so... Uh, oftentimes, um, it's easy to it, is to take that for granted, but it really is something that needs to be, it still can be active and living every day of your life. I have a friend who's a, a pretty highfalutin, you know, investment banker, and he's not very expressive to his wife because his wife came to him one day and he says, you know, honey, you never tell me that you love me. And his answer, he said, was, I told you that I loved you on our wedding day. And if anything changes, I will let you know. That was his answer. And my question to him was, so how long did you sleep on the couch, right? But, um, but many times, that's sort of how people can feel as, uh, about our salvation. Like, I gave my life to Christ at 16 years old, right? And, um, you know, and if I, I don't have to redo that. I made that commitment. But it's really... Uh, it's really wonderful to come back to the Father and to reaffirm the gift of salvation over and over. It sets something deep, I think it is, oh, it sets something deep within us to remember 
um, uh, to remember that this gift is not just a one-time gift. And it leads us to our last point, which is this. Grace is a gift that is ongoing. It is, it is a justification moment, as we'd say in theology, that we come into relationship. But that, great, that gift of grace is ongoing. In the last part of this verse, it says, Paul says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works for which God prepared us in advance to do. And that word handiwork is, that's a, I think a very um, Ephesus word because there were tons of craftsmen in this town. Uh, even before what we just read in verse seven, in order, Paul says, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God's grace isn't just a one-time event of salvation. It is, but it just keeps going. And sometimes it can feel when I talk to my friends, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, that salvation is by grace, but then you've got to do everything else yourself. But then it's your relationship with God. And if you ignore it, then it's on you, right? Um, it reminds me of a, um, of a friend who is a president, uh, I'm sorry, uh, they were on the board of an Ivy League school and had given them some very large gifts. And so when my daughters were probably junior high, high school age, they said, if you ever want us to write a letter of recommendation, let us know. And I remember looking at my wife and saying, do you mean that our daughter could might be your go to an Ivy League school, it'd almost be like, I can get you into this great Ivy League school, but once you're there, you got to work. You got to get the work done, right? It's on you, right? And uh, boy, if you're failing, boy, that person, how embarrassed are they going to be, right? That they pulled some strings to get you into the school, and then you ended up with everything from mediocre grades to maybe even dropping out. Um, the Christian, I... The Christian life is not this way. It's not. We, we have a gravitational pull, I think, as human beings to move into transactional relationships. And sometimes we take our faith and do, and do the same thing. We can say, God, it, it, I'm more comfortable if I can just work transactionally with you. If I do good, then you and I have a better standing. But this is not what grace is about. And this is not, as Paul is talking to this uh, to the church at Ephesus. This is not what he's saying, right? Um, he's not saying, boy, you don't deserve this. So you're like, you're in, but he's saying the father loves you and he has done everything to clear a path. And in fact, he has things that he wants to do in the future with you. He has freed you because he's got so many things he wants to do with you, right? I was talking to my, my best friend who's an elder at a church and in uh in chicago and um he said you know this concept he goes change my life in college and he said because our our college pastor he said gave him that example he goes it's almost like i became a christian and i felt like god said okay now there's this plateau where i'm at and there's a ladder that i'm going to place on the side of the wall right and i want to spend time with you up here on this you know at the at the top of this plateau and he says, so most of my life, I felt like, he, you know, he said, he said, I, I would feel like I'm going up a few rungs. I have a bad day. I come down. But then I would get these moments, right, where we're at a, you're at a camp, you're on a missions trip, you're in a good worship service where you really feel like you're up at that plateau. So if you don't feel that way when you wake up, that must be, that must be me. 
And he remembers our college pastor, Rick Reed, saying to him, he says, you know what? There is no ladder. You start every day at the top with the Father. You're completely loved. And every thought outside of that, every thought outside of that is a lie. And to know that God loves you, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, that he's walking beside you and he's always looking forward because you're God's handiwork and you're created to do good work. And he goes, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. Don't discard the gift. Don't, don't just segment that gift towards salvation, which it is. And, um, and that's a, you know, uh, it's a whole, ser- it's a whole sermon. It's, this passage is a whole series of its own, but um, don't disregard that gift. Um, God's grace and in his love, he loves you. And, and in closing, let me say this. Our, our relationship with the father doesn't have to be like that junior high dance. It does. It, it's not performance oriented. And maybe you come from, um, maybe you come from um, a, a family, friends, career. It's just the way we're bent um, in this world that we need to do more. We need to do better. There's always another thing that God will look on me a little bit more. And it starts to feel like that junior high dance. It's full of landmines, right? Like there's excitement here, but I think there's a lot of areas to fail. But I want to contrast the junior high dance, if you would, right? With the father, like I wanted to do it, but I, I spend most of my time on the sidelines um, with, um, with another wedding I was invited to in my late twenties. It was a Filipino wedding and I had no idea what I was getting into. Now I have to tell you, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. I've been to a lot of weddings. Um, I've been to a lot of like, you know, wedding parties and um, yeah, I can, I'm pretty good at predicting what's going to happen. I was not good at predicting what was going to happen at this, at, at, at this wedding. Um, it started off normal. Most people came in, they did the normal thing. They introduced the couple, but there was an energy in the room that felt like it was a rocket about to take off because it was. <laughs> and then the couples got up, they had their first dance they dance, you know, then they, uh, the, the bride danced with the groom and the groom's father and the bride's and the groom mom and all the things. And then they invited everybody to come onto the dance floor. And um, I think I was the only one left seated. Everybody got up and went to the dance floor immediately. Like it's about time. Right. And I was still, I was still junior high Eric. I was like, well, no, I don't go out there. I might make the wrong mistake. Finally, one of the aunties, if you will, grabbed me and's like, no, 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 you're coming too. get in here. We're all dancing. We're celebrating. Nobody is looking at themselves. We're here to celebrate. And it went, uh, it went all night. And it, I, I, did, I didn't know where the boundaries were. Then the, uh, their karaoke machine came out and everybody started singing. And then they go, you're singing now? And they're like, I can't sing. It goes, it doesn't matter. You are so loved here. This is so much fun. You're, you're singing next. And, uh, and then you're singing next, right? Um, and it taught me, and I have to be honest, my wife and I, a few years later, when we, um, when we planned our wedding, I took so much inspiration from that, that we hired a big band um, so that people would get up and dance. And sure enough, at the end of the, at the end of the night, we left 
and our friends later told us, oh, we stayed for another two hours celebrating. This is what God frees us with grace. He frees you every morning. Come celebrate with me. I love you. You're going through hard times. God's. I am not leaving your side. You are totally loved today. When you feel like God is far away from him, even when you feel like you even have making willful decisions, that God comes chasing after you like the prodigal son. It's his nature to love. So as we move into communion and Pastor Ben comes, would you pray with me? And I would ask that you would maybe place out your hands as you close your eyes just to not get distracted. Would you place out your hands in front of you like you're about to receive a gift? And pray with me. Father, we are so grateful that you would bestow this gift of grace. It's the gift of you, that you give us yourself. And there's nothing, it's, it's so wonderful. And we say, yes, thank you. Help us, Father. Help us understand the depth of your love towards us. Thank you that, uh, you, that in Jesus, you've taken care of all of our sin. And so we say, yes, we accept that. And Father, every morning, every evening, every afternoon, we put our hands out and say, thank you. Yes, we accept your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be in relationship with you. And thank you, Father, for it is your great love and grace. It's your beauty that, Father, that uh, we are drawn to you. Give us a mind and heart to understand and accept that. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.